It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Uh, I'm going to say no one's better than me. All right, Miami. Happy Monday. It's Mock Monday here on Locked On Dolphins. I'm your host, Kyle Krabs. Lead editor of USA Today's Dolphins Wire, senior NFL draft analyst at thedraftnetwork.com, a lifelong Dolphins fan, and super pumped for Tua Day tomorrow. You say Tua Day. Tua is meeting with his doctors uh, to find out if he's been medically cleared for football activities. But that is for tomorrow, not today. Today is dedicated to... I dropped a three-round mock draft at thedraftnetwork.com. Want to run through the Dolphins picks. And I also want to get into the quarterback class as a whole, speaking specifically about my notes on each of the players and how they would fit, hypothetically, into a Chan Gailey offense, which I think is an interesting conversation, one that has some unknowns to it, but also one that uh, – needs to be discussed, and we can kind of start to glean some some hints and clues to as we continue this prep for free agency in the 2020 NFL Draft. But first, as promised, my Mock Draft 6.0, bless it, I've done six of these things since September. Uh, Mock Draft 6.0 is released, and inside you will find the Dolphins have stayed true to the principles that I've kind of been preaching is is how they should attack it, how it seems like they're posturing to attack this draft class, which stay put at five. Don't waste the picks, right? And and I understand if you feel like two is a transcendent quarterback, you can justify jumping up and trading to get into position to take him. But I feel comfortable enough, and I believe the Dolphins feel comfortable enough with the quarterback class as a whole, and they could take this in stride if somebody else wanted to mortgage their future to go up and draft Tua by trading in front of the Dolphins. And as such, uh, the Tua's on the board at five for the Dolphins because I don't think, you know, we've talked about this, who the sneaky team is, which is the Raiders, in my opinion, to watch out for and jumping up for Tua because they have two first-round picks and and a super ambitious head coach in John Gruden and, and an owner that always likes to make a splash in Mark Davis. But behind them, you've got a rebuilding, or in front of them, you've got a rebuilding Carolina team and a Chargers team that seems to be in win-now mode and, and is probably going to be more interested in adding on a veteran offensive tackle. So with that writing on the wall, Miami sits put at five. Nobody trades in front of them. And they get their choice of two or Justin Herbert. I gave them two, and here's why. I think the Dolphins are comfortable with the idea of either one. But there's been so much pushback to the recent reports that, yeah, Miami might like Herbert, 
uh, all kind of pushing back towards, no, Tua is still the guy who's ultimately has their heart and is at the core of their plans. I don't, I don't think the drop-off is one that the Dolphins perceive necessary to trade a lot of draft capital for. I could very easily be wrong, but that's just kind of what I've been reading this situation as, and some people who feel like they have inklings about the Dolphins, all of it points in that direction, that they want to sit tight and take their pick. And they're not going to be super heartbroken if they miss two because somebody trades three or four first-round picks because you could still get Justin Herbert and they're comfortable enough with that. Two is the pick at five. Reports have come out. I believe Matt Miller was one to report this from Bleach Report that 18 was the spot the Dolphins were going to be looking to land themselves an offensive tackle. That did not happen here. And not because I disagree with the prospect of taking an offensive tackle, but rather because there were no offensive tackles worth taking at 18. Uh, I, I start getting into cost-benefit analysis and and, you know, if you take reach on an offensive tackle at 18, what kind of pass rushes are you looking at at 26 versus, you know, potentially the other way around? And uh, Josh Jones is the popular name that's been tied to Miami, but I did not give them Josh Jones at 18. I gave them Caleb on Chason, who we've talked about several times on this show now between the edge defender, uh, big board show, and the prospect spotlight we did on him at the NFL Combine. Home run pick, if you missed that show, it was the Thursday of the Combine, so I believe the 26th of February, I think. 26th or 27th of February. 27th was the day that show ran. Uh, highly recommend you go back and, and listen to that podcast because it talks a lot about how Chason's versatility is a dream come true for the Dolphins and and his attitude is just super infectious. So I would be thrilled with that that selection. And it really comes down to the defensive tackles for if he's going to make it there, in my opinion. Uh, I think you're going to see the big four offensive tackles go in front. I think you'll see at least two quarterbacks go. Uh, you got Jeff Akuda, Jeffrey Simmons. So that's four, six, seven, eight. Wide receivers, Henry Ruggs, CeeDee Lamb, Cherry Judy, all probably going in the top 15. So now you're at 11 players can you continue to cj henderson jump him and then you get into defensive tackles so now you're at 12 Derek brown and javon kinloff they both go in front of the atlanta falcons as a team specifically who needs pass rush help if they choose to draft javon kinlaw instead of caleb on chase on at 16 that's a big win now you're at 14 Xavier mckinney Defensive back of some kind of the Dallas Cowboys losing Byron Jones. Now you're at 16, so you could see how just kind of doing the quick math. Chase on's fringe, and it's all dependent on the offensive tackle run coming the way we anticipate that it will, and both defensive tackles going in front of them. If those defensive tackles go early, Miami should be in good shape to see Chase on kind of push down to 16, 17, 18. 26. Hey, icing on the cake here. You get Josh Jones, who some people want to give to the Dolphins at 18. Get him at 26. A little bit more raw around the edges, if we're being honest. Uh, his footwork is not great. His pass sets are awkward, some wasted steps. He steps forward before he steps backwards. So a lot to coach up there, but the ceiling's evident. And if you want to watch one game of Josh Jones to see what he can provide you, turn on Oklahoma against Houston from the season opener this year because it really shows you uh, his mobility in space, his mobility when, when they move him around the set, you know, if they pull him, ask him to fold inside, 
and his reactive power to roll through contact is really, really impressive. And that was a big selling point for me to say, okay, you know, he's, he's not just a long armed, uh, light framed athletic dude. He's got some power to him too. It's just, he's, he's so, he mismanages his his body movements to the point where it really robs him of a lot of his potential from an athleticism perspective. Moving into the second round, uh, I did regret this pick, but I do think it's one that has a very realistic chance of happening. J.K. Dobbins, 39. Not because I dislike J.K. Dobbins. I think J.K. Dobbins is a good value uh, at this point in the draft, and the Dolphins obviously need as much help at running back as they can get. But you see some of the backs who end up being here in the fourth round when you get through all three rounds. And man, it's really, it's a really tough sell to say, we're going to take a running back at 39, knowing you could get 85, 90% of that guy when you next come on the clock at 120. Never mind free agency. So, you know, I know there's been a fair share of champions. Travis Wingfield, former host of Locked On Dolphins, being one of them, says, hey, sign Melvin Gordon in free agency, man. And just like wrap up the, take the money hit there. And then that way you can sink like your premium position because if it wasn't going to be J.K. Dobbins, it was probably going to be Antoine Winfield Jr. out of Minnesota who went at 41 of the Cleveland Browns in the mock. So Miami passing on him hurt a lot. But nice little consolation prize that kicks in at 56. Safety Jeremy Chin from Southern Illinois is the next name that comes along the pipeline for the Dolphins. And Chin, if you're not familiar is the FCS version of Isaiah Simmons. He is super explosive. He jumped 41 in the vert, 11-6 in the broad jump. He ran 4-4-5 at like 223 pounds. So he's still like 15 pounds lighter than Simmons is. But this dude, and he's not even raw. Like a lot of the times you get these small school kids, like Kyle Duggar's the more popular small school gym, blew up the combine in his own right. Uh, he's a more popular name than Chin, but I think Chin is comfortably a better player at this point in time. And Chin can fill that Minka Fitzpatrick role, and instead of filling it at 205 or whatever Minka was playing at, he's playing it at 220. He ran faster than Minka, and he jumped higher than Minka, and he's more explosive than Minka. <laughs> so, like, yes, he's he, his football IQ is not to the degree in which Minka Fitzpatrick's was. Of course not. But the versatility is there. And much like Caleb on Chase on, that's the selling point for the Dolphins' defense is, hey, great, we get the chance to add a chess piece. And instead of drafting Isaiah Simmons at 5 or 7 and trading up and losing 26, you get Jeremy Chin at 56. And no, his first two years might be a little bit rough around the edges, but when it's all said and done, if you can, if he's as football smart as he seems to be playing at Southern Illinois with how much they asked him to do there, it's a big win. And uh, that, that you can get comparable, even if it is diminished returns of a day two pick of Jeremy Chin versus uh, some of the other earlier, more expensive options. Last pick in this three round was Damon Arnett for Miami at 70, the corner from Ohio State. I think he can play man. I think he can play zone. Uh, he's really feisty and scrappy. Uh, appreciate what he brings as a tackler on the edge. He didn't run super fast. I think he ran four, five, six. But I really don't care, to be honest with you. Uh, he could probably afford to add a little bit more functional strength to his game to match his 
play mentality, but he would be a very good fit for the Dolphins in the regard of uh, he's multiple in coverage. He can play Nick if you need him to drop inside and play against slot receivers. He can play on the outside. Functional play strength will be a bit of a bugaboo, but man, his tackling is on point. Watched him tackle Jonathan Taylor one-on-one on the boundary with a cast on his hand. He wants some context on if this dude can tackle. So in summary, Dolphins, Kyle Krabs, mock draft 6.0 over, over at the draftnetwork.com. We had uh, Tua Tungavaiola going to the Miami Dolphins at 5, Caleb on Chason going at 18, Josh Jones going at 26, J.K. Dobbins at 39, Jeremy Chin at 56, Damon Arnett at 70. If I had to have a mulligan, I'd probably pull Dobbins off. I'd say, yeah, just go sign Melon Gordon. It's fine. And I never, like, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Melvin Gordon. I think Melvin Gordon, his reputation, reputation exceeds him as a football player a little bit as far as his productivity and production versus his durability. You know, he was a former first-round pick, so he's very highly regarded, and, and he gets raw numbers because he gets a ton of touches. But if you would have told me, and this was the big wake-up call for me to see it play out and be like, man, they could have got, Winfield at, at 39, you could have still technically taken Chin. I think Winfield's potential is as uh, a guy who's a little bit more pure secondary. Like They they could have complemented each other fine, or you could have gone a different direction at, at 56 whether you wanted to get another. Uh, Lloyd Cushenberry was on the board. So I could have walked away with uh, Antoine Winfield at 39 and Lloyd Cushenberry, the center from LSU, at 56 instead of walking away with J.K. Dobbins and uh, Jeremy Chin. But don't sleep on that Chin pick. He's one of my sleepers for the Dolphins. I think the Dolphins would love to get their hands on him. We're going to be right back after this brief pause for sponsor identification so we could talk about these quarterbacks and Chan Gailey's uh, spaced, modern NFL spread-style offense, who can fit, why they fit, and how you can spin any of them to be a fit. We'll be right back. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. To quote the great, depends on your definition of great, I guess we're using it loosely, uh, Dave Gettleman, are you guys ready to talk about some quarterbacks? Time to talk quarterbacks here on Locked On Dolphins. We're going to start with Joe Burrow. I know he's not coming here. It's not really the point. The point is this. I have my non-team specific, I cannot stress that enough, non-team specific quarterback rankings as of March 6th up on my screen right now, and we're going to work through them player by player. We're going to talk about my notes on each player and how they could feasibly fit and how you could spin this into a positive fit for a Chan Gailey offense. So Jill Burrow. LSU quarterback expected to go number one overall to the Cincinnati Bengals. 
His best trait I have listed is his football intelligence. His worst trait is his arm strength. With elite football IQ, Joe Burrow solves nearly every riddle a defense can pose to him before the snap. A refined pocket passer with an innate sense of the pocket, Burrow will defeat pressure with his legs and arm alike. He projects best into a modern spread offense, hello, Chan Cayley, where he can diagnose soft spaces in defense and read the full field of play to disperse the football. With intangibles that are through the roof, Burrow is a face-of-the-franchise prospect and a plug-and-play starter. If you would have asked me 12 months ago what I thought of Joe Burrow, no, I'd have been out. Uh, the offense was a mess, and this is where it really gets murky because the only thing, the only thing that's different about the LSU offense this past year, besides of everybody playing better, was Joe Brady as the passing coordinator. Adapting a modern spread offense. Everything else was status quo. Joe Burrow, uh, Leonard Fournette, Leonard Fournette's brother was there, but so was Clyde Edwards-Hilaire last year. Uh, Justin Jefferson was there, Thad Moss, most of the offensive linemen, wide receiver, like Jamar Chase, they, they were all there. Personnel, the only thing that changed was the coaching. So this is where it gets really murky because Burrow, because he didn't have great physical tools, because he didn't have great physical tools uh, and the offense was bad, you said, well, uh, not sure, really sure how much I can buy into his upside is passer. But this is this comes down to coaching and fit, right? And Shane Gailey is known from his stops in Buffalo and New York Jets most recently in the 2010s for running a horizontal spacing passing offense, which you get a lot of those components with what LSU did with Joe Burrow in the LSU offense in 2019. So if you're looking for the fit, from Miami with Joe Burrow, it's pretty clear in that he's not going to blow you away with his arm. His arm's good enough. He's got great accuracy. His arm strength is good enough. Now, if he's a, a tick late on some throws, he's going to pay for it because the windows are going to close faster at the NFL level. But the anticipation is so strong. The ability to uh, process before the play and understand where the football needs to go based on alignments and who is lined up across from which your receivers and understanding concepts and anticipating how they're going to attack the quick game with burrow that they made a killing and then they would build double moves off the the quick game and, and go vertical and that was that that is what miami's offense ideally in a perfect world looks like and i don't i'm not comparing chan gailey to joe brady because that would be insanity but stylistically, expect to see the same thought process behind the way the Dolphins build their offense and the way LSU built their offense for Joe Burrow. Which brings us to Tua, Tonga Viola, who is my QB2 at this point in time. The, the gap between Burrow and Tua is not overwhelmingly large, but it is bigger than the gap from Tua to my three who's Justin Herbert, uh, Tua, my notes on Tua, football intelligence, again, best trait, worst trait, durability, red flags, 2018-2019 high ankle sprains, 2019 dislocated hip. Tua Tonga Viola's main question falls into his durability after suffering multiple ankle injuries and a dislocated hip in his college career. His exposure and mastery of a 2018 vertical offense and a 2019 
West Coast-oriented offense at Alabama, provides an easy projection of the bros. He's an elite passer with rare intangibles, short area quickness, and accuracy. Tunga Viola has never made a stage that was too big. This is a face of the franchise player who, if healthy, will be a top-end quarterback soon before long. So where, where's the discrepancy? Because I said Joe Burrow, consi- the gap between Burrow and Tua is slightly larger than the gap between Tua and Justin Herbert. Why is that? Two things. Durability is a huge piece of the puzzle here. But also, uh, the progressions that he's worked, he does a lot of processing, layered reads, uh, high to low, and does very well in those scenarios. He will misread linebackers and safeties on the backside of plays from time to time. You think about the interception that he threw against Georgia, it was that way. Think about the interception he threw against LSU in 2019, it was that way, missing Patrick Queen in underneath zone coverage. He's misread over the middle of the field a handful of times. And he's not as good getting out of pressure situations as what Joe Burrow is. How is that? Tua, for all his masterful sliding of the pocket and ability with the quick feet to step up and and break angles off the edge, he tries to do too much at times, and he needs to take his checkdowns more often. Uh, Tua does not get outside the pocket very often, and when he does get outside the pocket as a thrower, it's not very good. So Joe has more magic outside the pocket, but he also gets the balls down, ball down to his checkdowns much more consistently and much more confidently than what Tua does. Tua wants to continue to hold and create something down the field. You can't go broke taking a profit, but if you're holding the ball for three and a half, four seconds in a chaotic pocket, you're going to get hit, and those hits are going to add up to the durability issues that we've seen. So, I have no questions with Tua's translation into a Chan Gailey-oriented horizontal spread offense because it's very much like a lot of the quick concepts that have blended over the last two years at Alabama. Alabama 2018 was full send. Everybody, we're running down the field. We're attacking the deep safeties. We're putting that linebacker in a bind between the second and third level of the defense, and we're just going to kill you there all day long. And they did. 2019, ironically, you get into their questions. Oh, well, it's a little bit of a dink and dunk offense. Is he just thriving because he's given the ball to all these good playmakers? And I get why you asked that question, but go back and watch 2018. I think his arm talent's better than Joe Burrow's. He's equally as accurate, but he's got a little bit more zip on his ball. Of course, now the hip injury calls into question how easily can he re recruit and get that strength back as a thrower? I think his throwing session, you know, a lot of the pro day stuff is just kind of nonsense and noise, but, but two is the ability to throw the ball will be important for him. The ability to generate zip on the ball and throw confidently and, and ease those questions about will this impact his ability to throw the football? It is important for him. Just like today's an important day for him for medical clearance. Uh, but I think from a mental processing perspective and how he's, uh, able to to push the ball as needed and, and get the ball out. He would just need to be coached up on, get that ball out of your hands, man. You don't need to hold it. You're too valuable to us to be playing hero ball back in the pocket, which is a, what you see a little bit of Russell Wilson do sometimes. So Russell 
is a little bit more dense and, and Russell doesn't have the durability issues that Tua has. So those would be the divides for Tua. Justin Herbert at three. This is where it gets interesting because a lot of the feedback on Justin Herbert is the Oregon offense that he ran did not play to his strengths. Guess what that Oregon offense did? A bunch of quick game. Did a bunch of wide receiver screens on the outside. Uh, as a big armed passer, you know, there's people that say, you know, I want to, we want to free Justin Herbert from this Oregon offense. I think skill players is a big piece of that, but I also think the the receivers that Miami has in Preston Williams and Devontae Parker can be a really helpful pairing for for Justin Herbert, who's not as pinpoint accurate as the other two guys. My notes on Justin Herbert as follows. Arm strength is his best quality. There's much more to him than that, don't worry. Worst trade is consistency. Justin Herbert has all the physical tools to become a franchise quarterback in the NFL, particularly for vertical passing offenses. Herbert presents as a player with consistency issues on timing throws and troublesome lapses with pressure. Ball security is another issue, so Herbert will need to be aided by high-level interior offensive line play to protect him from constant duress and amplifying some poor decision-making. If everything clicks, he's a top-tier talent, but the wrong situation could be nuclear. So obviously there's more risk-reward here with Justin Herbert. I will say this for Justin Herbert. Out of he, Joe Burrow, and Tua Tungaviola, he has the best physical tools, and there is more of the field at his disposal in off-script situations than either Joe Burrow or Tua. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Justin's arm is so explosive that the entire field is at his disposal when he gets outside the pocket. I think he's a better outside-the-pocket thrower than what Tua is. But he was not asked to roll out a whole lot. He had to get outside on his own. But he's a very natural thrower. He's got a whip for an arm. How can this fit into to a Changeli offense? Well, remember, Changeli's offense, while horizontally oriented, builds in and packages the vertical shots to take big shots down the field. And that's the piece where Justin Herbert can really thrive. So if you're going to play quick game and vertical, quick game and vertical, the vertical booms can be huge booms. And if you get the offense right where you can run the football and keep Justin out of second and 15 situations where the defense can just tee off on you, if you want to philosophically commit, not dissimilar to how Tennessee commits to running the football, maybe not to the same degree, but I think that's another worthwhile conversation to talk about at some point because Miami has this home field advantage, this humidity, this South Florida heat. You think about the Miami Dolphins dynasty. What did they do? They ran the football and they ran it down your freaking throat and dared you to stop them, and they wore you out. And late in games, they needed three yards. They got six because you were too gassed to be able to stop them. If the Dolphins want to play to their home field advantage and they want to build an offense that, that's going to be complimentary for any quarterback and not strap you with everything, and that's the, the mistake. Here's the crux of the issue right here. Okay, When the Dolphins drafted Ryan Tannehill, you know, people are going to turn their nose up at the sound of Ryan Tannehill, and I get it. Seven years of our time, everybody was invested in it. It didn't turn out anywhere near the way anybody wanted it to. 
Do you do you know the numbers of how often Joe Philbin had Ryan Tannehill trying to be the guy and carrying and shouldering the load of the Dolphins offense despite the fact that he had spent some of his college career playing wide receiver he was a low consistency quarterback that was still getting his feet wet into playing the quarterback position 47 times in Ryan Tannehill's first 52 games, which were all under Joe Philbin, Tannehill passed the ball 28 or more times. He had up at the 30 pass attempts per game, 41 times in 52 games. 35 pass attempts, 29 out of 52 games. And 40 pass attempts or more, 14 times in 52 games. With the Dolphins not having an awesome line, awesome offensive line. And we sit here and wonder why his body broke down. And then we sit here and wonder why he goes to Tennessee with a team that has a good offensive line and wants to run the football, and they ask him to throw the ball 23, 24, 25 times a game and magically looks good. What was the only year Ryan Tannehill was good as a starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins? 2016. What'd that team do? They had J.H.I. run the ball for 1,200 yards. Forget the fact that 600 of them came in three games. There was an effort to run the ball. They have Brandon Albert, Laramie Tunsil, Mike Pouncey, Juwan James on that offensive line. So this becomes the philosophical question that we as Dolphins fans have to get our head around. Do we want a quarter? Do we want to try and get a quarterback who can play with trash around him, or do we want a good team in general? Because if you want a good team in general, Justin Herbert arguably could do more for you as far as explosive plays because of his arm talent and what he's able to do and how he's able to push the ball. And he is an athletic guy. No, he doesn't have the same innate feel of manipulating the pocket that either Joe Burrow or Tua does. But if you're running a lot of quick game and you're building your play-action passing and you're deep passing off of that, that would be the case that I would make for Justin Herbert. Which brings us to Jordan Love, the last guy we're going to talk about today. It's generally considered a top four. Jordan Love is interesting because he's kind of the blend of both. He's the most raw, he's very toolsy, he's very athletic, he's got a little bit of a backyard feel to him as far as getting outside the pocket. He almost thrives more outside of structure than he thrives inside structure. So if you're going to build the case for Jordan Love and how that makes sense, let me not get ahead of myself. Arm strength, best quality. Decision making is his worst quality. Jordan Love has franchise quarterback qualities and should be regarded as a prospect with a Pro Bowl ceiling. Love's statistical regression in 2019 is not indicative of a regression in skill or decision-making. It was vic- He was a victim of a poor supporting cast in many instances. He lost a ton of supporting cast and his head coach. Love will need patience and must go to a team with a coaching staff able to nurture, develop, and cater passing schemes to where he thrives. He is not plug-and-play, but he is a potential game-changer at quarterback. If you want to build the case for Jordan Love for the Miami Dolphins, he thrives in the stuff that the Dolphins have never had, except for maybe Ryan Fitzpatrick this year, outside of structure. It's where he's at his best. He's got a big arm. He can push the ball. And if you're going to harness him, if you're going to harness that potential, is the best way to do that to put him in an offense that gets the ball out of his hands quickly and and makes the reads very simplistic as far as we're going to space the field. It's going to be very simple for you to read where you're supposed to go. 
If this guy drives and opens his hips this way and you throw underneath, if they're going to trigger and you see the linebackers rolling across this way, then you're going to come back and you're going to throw it here, backside. It sounds very elementary, but that would be my case for Jordan Love is he's got the intangibles factor as far as when there's chaos around him, he makes a lot of his best plays. Dolphins haven't seen that in a long time. And it's easier to take a guy and water down the game, look at what the Buffalo Bills have done with Josh Allen, and Jordan Love's floor is higher than Josh Allen's, but look at what they've done with him. To tur- they turned Josh Allen into a quick game inside 10-yard passer in 2019, and they won 10 football games. And Josh had a reasonable year. He still had very ugly warts in his game, but he was a much better quarterback than I ever dreamed he would be as a player, and that's what has made me more receptive to Jordan Love as a potential prospect. Hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Talking about quarterbacks for Chan Gailey and the Miami Dolphins 2020 offense. It's going to be a fascinating storyline to see develop because we only know so much until we start to see it. But we could start to fill in the gaps so we could start to make some jumps. And then that way, whenever they make whatever decision that it is they're going to make, we can have that logic and thought process behind it to understand and say, okay, this is the direction that they're going to go with. Kyle Krabs, come on back tomorrow. We're going to have a good time. I think I'm going to open up the Twitter questions for the mailbag. Uh, we had a great time with that last week. Had over 50 questions. I didn't get to all of them. I apologize. So bring the heat. Bring the good ones, and I'll make sure it gets on the air tomorrow. Uh, Kyle Krabs signing off. Thanks, as always, for listening to Locked on Dolphins. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked on podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.